Dr. Martin Barhorst had a birthday yesterday, eh? How old, Rhonda, did he become? Wow. 40, 48? 28. He keeps his numbers the way uh, uh, people in, uh, what's that math where you have to do it over and over because you don't know what you're doing? I don't know. Anyway, and Michelle, can you come up for just a second, please? <laughs> Michelle and Lewis and Becky and I have been friends for such a long time, and Michelle loves my birthday because until tomorrow, she's still a year older than I am. <laughs> but tomorrow, we become the same age, and she gets, she gets really tickled about it. Now, uh, let's start class with that. Um, good morning. We, if anybody needs a lesson, Mark Kraber's got them, and... Uh, can pass them out. Uh, uh, raise your hand. This morning we do Esther. Esther is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love the story of Esther. Uh, I took a, a Hebrew class uh, um, way back a long time ago where uh, we translated Esther. Um, was one of the books we translated in that class. And the teacher that I had at the time was Jewish. Uh, just a marvelous man named uh, Tuvia Klein. And uh, Professor Klein uh, uh, I love the story of Esther because the story of Esther is the, the origin of the Jewish holiday of Purim, P-U-R-I-M. And Purim as a Hebrew holiday is the most fun holiday that they have. It's a time of gift giving. It's a time of joy. It's a time of rejoicing. And one of the things that's done during the festival of Purim, which has been celebrated for over 2,000 years, is um, um, the people get razors or clackers and noisemakers and all these kinds of things because uh, the story of Esther is read at the celebration the, at the synagogue of Purim and there are certain characters in it. And for some characters, everyone will cheer when uh, uh, certain characters are named. But the bad guy, the villain in the story is Haman. And Haman, when his name is mentioned, all the kids are supposed to take their little razors and they get to make a lot of noise, which is not characteristic for the audience participation at a synagogue. Um, uh, it'd be like during Demond's sermon for us to give our kids the liberty of catcalls and, and yelling and hollering and whistling and booing and, and such at various times during the, the sermon. Uh, kids have a ball. So kids grow up uh, uh, learning, if they're Hebrew, learning to love the celebration of Purim, a time of gifts and a time of fun. Um, uh, it is an unusual holiday because it's not one that's in the book of, of uh, Moses. It's not found in the Torah. God did not institute Purim as a celebration like he did uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or Rosh Hashanah uh, uh, in a sense of a Jewish New Year at least, or the, at least the festivals that are, are given of booths and tabernacles, the uh, festivals that celebrate the harvest and things. So with uh, uh, Esther and Purim, we have something that is unique and different. Let's do some background work on the book, but do it quickly. It's in your handout. And then let's get to the story because the story is one of my favorite stories to tell. Uh, so if we start with the background, uh, we don't know who wrote uh, Esther. There are some indications that at least uh, the, some of the writings of Mordecai, one of the main characters, were used in the book. But the author of the book itself, uh, we don't know. There are various theories that have been given that I've put down in the papers 
uh, but none of those theories uh, uh, have any way of, of uh, being proved conclusively. Uh, by the same token, the date of authorship is probably sometime during the Persian captivity or domination of the Jews. Uh, uh, history tells us that the Persian Empire crumbled to the Greeks around 333 to 331 B.C., something in that range. So um, we, we can be rather confident that the book was written before the Greeks took over. Um, otherwise, you'd expect to see Greek references. And whoever wrote this book clearly had a very intimate knowledge, not only of Persian culture, but of the Persian capital of Susa and the, the way the court was outlined. Uh, very clearly firsthand knowledge from the author of this book. When it was written, though, we don't know. The events themselves took place during the reign of a king that the Hebrew calls Ahasuerus. And, uh, um, or if we were reading it in Hebrew, it would read Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus is a king that scholars have tried to identify historically. Most scholars uh, uh, identify him with the king Xerxes, who was the Persian king, the son of Darius. Uh, that would put the events happening somewhere in the mid-400s B.C. Uh, the reason most scholars do that is Xerxes, is, Xerxes, by the way, is Greek. It's the Greek name that was given to him, um, uh, the Persian king. His Persian name, I can't pronounce, but I wrote it. Um, in, in English letters, it's Kishayarshan uh, or something. I don't know. But you get rid of, if you're, if you're doing Hebrew, you get rid of the vowels. And this uh, KH sound um, is, uh, let's get a felt tip, is a, a, a KH sound. But you can see, you can take, if you take out those vowels, you can start seeing how you've got the certain core letters that seem to be coming from the uh, 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 Hebrew. So... Uh, lots of folks think that it was Xerxes based upon that. Some folks think it was Artaxerxes II who was uh, 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 sometime later. But it doesn't matter. We don't know uh, for certain. Uh, and and uh, I'm not sure we ever will know. A lot of the historical archaeology that might confirm this would be archaeology that would be found in the country of Iraq. Um, uh, maybe some in Iran, but, but basically Iraq in the Muslim world right now where the rabid fundamentalists have had uh, a good measure of control for some time. And I think even if archaeological finds were discovered by them, which talked about how God protects the Jews sovereignly and how the Jews are destined to, to uh, uh, live for the duration of mankind, I'm not sure that those archaeological finds would necessarily find the light of day. Uh, so the fact that there's not good archaeology that substantiates or illuminates this story to us, uh, I don't find, frankly, that surprising. Having said that, the Septuagint itself adds a lot of verses to the story of Esther that are not given in our Bible. We don't think they were in the original Hebrew. Uh, they were added for reasons that some can surmise. Let me throw out one real quick. Um, uh, I throw it out in reference to the themes of the book. The very first theme in the book of Esther, there's no direct reference to God. None. There's no direct reference to prayer or to praise and worship. It is the only book in the Bible in which that is true. 
I think that's probably the reason why the Septuagint added a bunch of verses, because the Septuagint added verses that do talk about God and uh, uh, these other matters. But in the book of Esther itself, uh, that's a good Bible trivia question you can stump people with who are good Bible scholars because they would never imagine that in the story in the book of Esther, there's no reference, direct reference to God. The reason most people wouldn't imagine it is because the story itself is all about God. It's all about how God works in his people. It's all about how God takes care of his, his chosen people, the Jews. It's all about how God's going to ensure that the Jewish race survived to produce the Messiah that had been promised since Abraham. So it, the, the whole book's about God. And that's why it's so amazing there's no direct reference to him. Most likely, it's a literary technique that was used by the author to, to, you know, to, to draw the attention to God because God's not mentioned. And yet he is pervasive throughout the book. So I put down for the themes, one of the main themes of the book is God's care for his people. Another main theme for the book is God's answering prayer. Another main theme of the book is God's providence. By providence, that should be our theological term du jour. Providence means that God manipulates history to see that results uh, uh, that God wants are achieved. Okay? God sees in history what he wants, and, and, and history unfolds into God's plan. And that's providence. And, and that's a clearly a theme of the book of Esther. So, having said all of that, I talked about Purim as a festival. Um, Haman, Mordecai, and the Razors. Oh, this is useful. Uh, Pur is a Persian word. Uh, it's not Hebrew. And, and the Persian word for Pur is translated lot, L-O-T, often. But L-O-T in the sense of, of um, casting a die. Okay? You all know, right? Um, if you, if you plural uh, a Hebrew word, we've talked about that, or a, a word, Semitic word, you add I-M if it's a masculine plural. So Purim, the festival, means dice in essence. And um, um, that's, this is the festival of Purim because, as we'll see in the story, the day the Jews were to be annihilated was determined by throwing dice. And it turned out not to be a day they were annihilated. That's why they're still um, with us. Now, let's start the story. It's a great story. If you've got your Bible, you can open it. I've got mine open because I don't want to leave anything out. And if I tell the story from memory, I'm afraid I might. So I'm going to walk through it with some, some notes that I've put in my Bible. And we'll put some on the overhead when we get to them. But I thought the most appropriate thing to do was to start out and let y'all see what she looked like. This is a picture of Esther. Now, she was, she was a babe. Okay? The Bible makes it clear. She wins the beauty contest, the first Miss Universe. It's the first worldwide beauty contest that history's made a note of, and Esther wins it. I don't know if this is before or after the beauty contest, uh, because the, the guy who painted it didn't tell us. His name was Andrea del Castagno, and he was an Italian artist who painted in the middle of the 1400s. And he managed to get this picture of her around 1450. And this is the woman who the book is named after. Now, let me tell you how she came to be important in the book. There was a king of Persia. His name was Ahasuerus in the Hebrew. I'm not going to call him Xerxes. That's what your NIV calls him because uh, most scholars do think he was Xerxes. But that wasn't his name in the book that I translated for this class. So it's not what I'm calling him. 
King Ahasuerus was the king. He had a queen. Her name was Vashti. Say Vashti. Vashti. Never say it again. She was a wicked woman. See, Ahasuerus was very proud of what he had, so he's for six months displayed all of his splendors and all of his treasures, and he ended it with a big party, a big seven-day banquet feast. Now, the, 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 whoever wrote Esther could have grown up in our house. I see, my mom is here today. My grandmother's here today, but she never lets me reference her in here. Um, <clears throat> whoever wrote this book could have come to our house. This book has more eating in it than any book in the Bible. There are 10 feasts in this short book. They're just eating all the time. These were Lanier's back then. We must be of Persian descent. The, the king, Ahasuerosh, he throws a big seven-day feast at the end of this. And while he's having his feast, Queen Vashti is having her seven-day feast for the women. The men are having their feast and there is a great deal of wine being consumed. And toward the end of this seven-day wine festival feast, um, uh, the king, Ahasuerosh, says to his eunuchs, Hey, go get the queen. Tell her to come out here in all of her robes. i got to show everybody how good-looking my queen is. That's like the crowning treasure. I've put my treasure on display for six months. We've had all the food. I want to end it with the grand finale. Bring Vashti out. So the eunuch goes to get Queen Vashti. Says, hey, queen, king wants you to put on your finest and come out and let's show everybody what a studette you are. And she says, uh, she says no. Well, it doesn't take Lewis as a marriage counselor to tell you. <laughs> though I'm sure he could. What we learn when we read in verse 1. I mean, chapter 1. Ah, right about here, verse 12. When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. That's a Hebrewism, meaning he was really hacked off. He was furious. So he brings his counselors in who already know about it. I mean, he didn't privately say, hey, Vashti, would you please come? He sent messengers. And she returned the message through the messengers. So the palace tongues are wagging. Everybody already knows about it. As, and, and, and he's probably the last to know. And he's just furious. And you know everything going on in his head. How dare she embarrass me? How dare she? Who does she think she is? I am the king of the castle. There's only one king in the castle. Everyone else is a servant, whether they have a queue in front of their name or not. And this is not right. So he calls his counselors together, I'm sure to some degree, to make a show as well as to figure out what to do. And he says, what should I be doing? And they said, oh, look, first of all, She's insulted you. But let's, let's be real. She's not just insulted you. She's insulted every man. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> it, says the, it says, not only has she done wrong against the king, but against everybody. Because the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and all the women are going to despise their husbands. And their line, it's going to happen. Every house throughout the Persian Empire... Husband's going to say something, wife's going to say, 
Queen, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought, but she wouldn't come. And we're going to be hearing it. We got to nip it in the bud. So, if we don't, just be warned. As, she said, as uh, the book says, uh, uh, verse 18, down at the end, it says, if we don't nip it, there will be no end of disrespect and discord. So the only thing to do, basically, is replace her, get rid of her, dump her, take her crown, never let her come into your presence again. King says, sounds good to me. So let it be written, so let it be done. And she is, uh, boom, gone. Now, history tells us that somewhere in here, Xerxes, if that is indeed who the king was, uh, went for about a three-year campaign to go fight and take over Greece. He was not successful. But there is about a three-year time gap in the story that happens here as the story itself unfolds. So that's one reason some scholars think that it was probably Xerxes who was the king. Um, but at some point, the king comes back a few years later from battle, and, uh, uh, and Esther chapter 2 starts, and it says, Later, when the king of anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti. He starts thinking about her. He starts thinking about all the good times. Starts thinking about uh, what she'd done. And you can just see it starting to, you know, he's back from a few years on the battlefield and, you know, maybe he's got a little different perspective now. And his attendants are quick to take care of it. They said, hey, king, before you get all wrapped up remembering Vashti, uh, let, I got it, we got an idea. Let's have a beauty pageant. Let's have a Miss Persia contest. And since we basically have the whole world except Greece, we can call it the Miss Universe contest. And we will have it, and we will search throughout the land. We'll bring all the best-looking women, and you can pick which one you want to take Vashti's place. Now, the king has a harem. He has tons of women, but one of them gets to wear the crown and be called the queen. Okay? So, let's do it. And the king says, you know, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I like that idea. So let it be written. So let it be done. And so all of the women around the land are being searched to find the most beautiful ones. Now, there is one woman named Esther. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah, which means myrtle. I don't know how many of you have myrtles in your family. We've got some crepe ones growing in our yard, but we don't have any myrtles in our family. But you have an Aunt Myrtle? Is she a beautiful woman? Was she a beautiful woman? No. Rhonda had a homely Aunt Myrtle. I don't know who else might have a Myrtle in their family, but your mother's name's Myrtle? Call her Hadassah sometime just to see if she answers. And if she doesn't, say, I'm sorry, Mom, I've been speaking Jewish, Hebrew. Um, Hadassah is the Hebrew. Esther was her name. Esther being evidently the Persian. Um, she was known at least as Esther. And she was, quote, lovely in form and features. I mean, she was a good-looking woman. She was a babe. Right? That's what Lewis calls them. <laughs> As long as they're his wife or daughter. Other than that, he doesn't call them anything. Except ma'am. Um, maybe his mom. 
When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Hegai is the king's eunuch. Please understand, if you are one of the king's women, you do not get to affiliate or associate or run around with men. The, any of the guys that are working for you will be eunuchs. And that's one way they ensured that any offspring of those women were the king's and nobody else's. Um, uh, pretty understood. Uh, he- Esther is entrusted to Hegai, and Hegai finds her to be just a charming woman, which tells us she not only was beautiful in form and feature, but she was beautiful from the inside out, which is what uh, uh, God and ultimately most everybody is looking for. Uh, everything else fades. Uh, Esther never tells them she's Jewish. Mordecai, her cousin, had told her not to. Oh, I've left Mordecai out. Mordecai was Esther's cousin. Esther was an orphan. She had lost her mother and father. So she had been raised by her cousin who raised her as if she had been his own daughter. He obviously was much older than she was and uh, Esther grew up with great respect for him. And it's a wonderful statement of of how even a a, a blended family or a a non-direct family grows up with the same love and respect uh, because of the actions and the commitment of the people. So, um, Esther gets put in. She, does, she honors Mordecai's uh, uh, desires not to express that she's Jewish. And it's interesting, before she gets brought to the king, she gets a beauty treatment. She gets a spa day. But her spa day lasts for a year. She gets six months with oil of mirror and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. Now, I've got to tell you, If she was not good looking to start with, she had no excuses after 12 months. Because don't you know, during that 12 months, they fed her, they exercised her. I mean, they treated her like you would your prize horse. You take real good grooming care, real good physical care, and get her ready for her time with the king. Now, each of these women would get their time with the king, and they'd be allowed to bring what they wanted to, and they'd spend a night with the king, and if the king liked them, He'd, he'd keep them on one list, and if he didn't like them, they'd probably never see the king again. They were never allowed to approach the king or talk to the king unless they were first summoned. And then if they'd learned the lesson of Vashti, when they were summoned, they did come. Um, now, the turn comes for Esther to go to the king. And, and Esther's allowed to take whatever she wants to try and impress the king and give the king her best. Esther goes to Hegai, who was the eunuch in charge of her, and says, what do you think I should take? A woman who's taking counsel. Another hallmark of her, which tells us that this woman had a lot on the ball. The Bible teaches that there's wisdom in taking counsel. And she does. And she did just what Hegai said. He knew the king a lot better than she would. She'd never met the guy. She goes with what Hegai says. She spends the night with the king, and she wins favor with everyone who saw her. And the king himself... Verse 17 of chapter 2, was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. She won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins, and he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti and gave a great great banquet. Time for another feast. So there's a big banquet on uh, 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 on her behalf. Now, fortunately, we have been able... um, Tablet, where have I messed up here? Ah, there... That's Esther, right? Um, oh, this, this may be when she'd gotten her picture made. Um, it may have been right then around the beauty contest. Before I tell you, go to the next picture, I need to tell you something that happened to Mordecai. Mordecai 
came to Susa and stayed around Esther. Every day he'd check on her to see how she was doing. Now, he probably wasn't allowed to interact with her personally, so it'd be through a eunuch or something, but he kept up, wanted to know everything happening with her, and he'd sit at the city gates, which is where a lot of the, the action was. And one day he was sitting at the city gates when two of the king's servants, who were very ticked off at the king, decided they were going to kill him. And they were sitting there conspiring together a plot to assassinate the king. So Mordecai gets word to Esther and says, Hey, these two guys over here are planning on killing the king. I overheard it at the gate. Esther gets the word to the king. There's an investigation. Turns out to be true. Esther gives credit to Mordecai. So it's written down. Mordecai did this for the king. Investigation turns out to be true. Boom, those two guys are dead. King has them killed. So Mordecai is a pretty good guy. He's not only looking out for uh, Esther, but he's looking out for the king. He's doing his civic good. And we find him to be a good guy in this story. Now enters in chapter 3 the bad guy. The bad guy is a man named Haman. Haman is, is, uh, gets a position of great honor with King Ahasuerus. He finds Haman and he says, Haman, by the way, say his name, Haman, Haman, Haman. Don't ever name your kids that. He says, Haman, you are a man of honor. I'm elevating you above all the other officials I've got. And when Haman went through the crowd, all the people would kneel. Everybody kneeled to Haman, except, of course, the king, and one other man of note. Care to guess who it was? Mordecai. Mordecai wasn't going to bow his knee to anybody, uh, uh, at least not to Haman. And to a good Jew reading this book, he would understand that he should not be bowing his knee as if Haman were a god over him, because Haman would not be. Well, Haman sees that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, and the Bible tells us that Haman was enraged. And then he found out that Mordecai was a Jew. And that made him even madder. And he thought, you know, I could kill Mordecai, but how much better to go ahead and just kill all of his people because they're all probably about the same. So in the 12th year of King Xerxes, the first month, they cast the pur, the lot, the die, in the presence of Haman to decide what day they wanted to kill all the Jews. The lot fell on the month of Adar, which is the 12th month, um, uh, uh, so they decided, hey, on the 12th month, the month of Adar, in fact, they decided Adar the 13th, which generally in our calendar will land somewhere in February or March. It varies year to year. But that's going to be the day where we're going to wipe out all the Jews. All he had to do is get the king's permission. So he goes to King Ahasuerus and he says, you know, there's a group of people that really dishonor and disrespect you, our culture, everything we stand for. They're really bad. I propose we go ahead and just set a day and annihilate them. King says, well, whatever you think, that's fine. Let's annihilate the Jews. So they do up an edict, puts the signet ring on it where it cannot ever be revoked. And the edict says on the, the 13th of Adar, everybody can kill all the Jews they want and take all of their property. It's open days. It's open season on Jews. You find a Jew, you're welcome to kill them. You're, you take anything you want as your booty. And so um, this word goes out. Well, when Mordecai hears this, Mordecai is abhorred. He's just flabbergasted. He rips his clothes off. He puts on sackcloth. He starts mourning and wailing. And word gets to Queen Esther that Mordecai is mourning and wailing and wearing sackcloth. So she does the, the, the good daughter thing, of, a woman thing, of sending him a new set of clothes. 
So this, hey, take these. I hear my uncle or cousin, whatever she called him, is, is uh, uh, wearing sackcloth and ashes and all. Take him some new clothes. Well, Mordecai says, I'm not going to wear these. I tore my clothes on purpose. This is a problem. You go tell the queen. You go tell Queen Esther that the king, that, that the king signed an edict that's gone out to everybody because of Haman, and we're all getting wiped out on Adar 13. And the queen needs to go see the king and put a stop to it. So the messenger goes back to Queen Esther and says, well, here's what Mordecai says. And Queen Esther says, go back and explain to my doesn't live in the court and understand how it happens cousin slash uncle slash father that I just can't do that. You don't approach the king. The king has to ask for you. If you go in front of the king without him asking you, the, the law's already written, you die unless he's in an incredibly good mood and extends out his golden scepter. Then you're welcome. Other than that, you don't ask for him. He asks for you. And it's been 30 days since he's asked for me, so I don't know how things are going there anyway. Well, the word comes back to Mordecai. Mordecai says, okay, I want you to go back to her and I want you to tell her this. He says, I'll see your culture and raise you one. He says, you go back and tell her, hey, number one, remember you are a Jew. You can get killed too. Don't think just because you're fat and happy in the palace that you're going to be removed from this. It can happen to you. And number two, a great verse that everybody ought to underline in their Bible. Esther chapter 4, verse 14, the last part of it says, Let's see if I can get it on here. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. You see, it doesn't say God, but God's there. God will deliver his people. He's promised that. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? Here's what you underline. Who knows? But that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Esther, dear, this may be the whole reason you won the beauty pageant and not just won the beauty pageant but the heart of the king who knows but that you weren't put into the position you're in right now for just the very crisis that you're facing whatever the crisis is in your life who knows that God didn't put you there with all that you have and all that he's given you just so you can handle the crisis through him. Well, Esther says, okay, he makes a good point. Tell you what, go back and tell him that for the next three days, me and all of my ladies and people, we're not going to eat. We're not eating day or night. We're going to fast for three days. Tell him to fast for three days, and uh, um, then I'll approach the king. And if I die, I die, and he better remember. And if I don't, then... You know, I'd say praise the Lord, but she doesn't use the word Lord. So, but that was the attitude. She said, I'm going to do it. So on the third day, Esther puts on her royal robes. Again, that could be Esther in her royal robes. Here is her putting on her royal robes according to Rembrandt. 
Rembrandt thought that she had real fancy looking uh, royal robes and she's getting all dolled up because she's going to prepare the king. Now she hadn't eaten in three days. So she's, <laughs> she's been fasting. She's feeling spiritually right. She hadn't eaten in three days so she's feeling a little slim. Got the good look going. She fit into those robes real well. They're feeling loose. She is headed to meet the king and maybe to die. And you see Rembrandt's giving her this look of resignation in her face, like, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. But this is what I need to do, and this may be why I'm put here. And so I'm going. And she does. She goes in front of him. Now, this is Vignon's painting, which is in the Louvre. Um, it was actually painted a little bit before Rembrandt. And I don't know if she had changed clothes because she didn't like that first outfit, or if he, which is real possible. Um, based upon my experience in life. Uh, in fact, I'd bet that's about the fifth or sixth outfit she tried on. She uh, uh, goes to see the king who's sitting up there with his scepter. And of course, what happens is, uh, uh, as the Bible relates it, she goes into the outer courtyard. The king is facing in such a way that he sees the entrance and he sees her there. And, and the book tells it in a wonderfully dramatic moment as the king extends his scepter and says, Come on in, Esther. Haven't seen you in 33 days. How in the world are you? Welcome. And so she approaches. She touches his scepter. Um, uh, here's another view of it. And, and, and in fact, in this view, you see her swooning. See her like there swooning, those two guys catching her. There are lots of uh, Renaissance painters that would paint this scene because it's such a dramatic scene in the Bible. And they would, most of them, paint her swooning because their view was she hadn't eaten in three days. She probably was weak. And they figure it wouldn't have hurt to swoon in front of the king. And so, you know, it gets his manliness thinking, oh, poor woman, you're swooning. What's the problem? Now, the Bible doesn't say she swooned. It just says that she approached the king. The swoon is an interpretation, understand. But she approaches him. The king says, what would you like? I, you tell me, uh, you don't come to me unless there's a problem. You tell me your problem, boom, I'm going to fix it. She says, you know what I'd like? I'd like you to come to dinner. Smart woman. I'd like you to come to dinner. In fact, I'd like you and Haman to come to dinner. Could the two of y'all come to dinner? I'll make it myself. King says, smart woman. He says, we'll be there tonight. So, goes to dinner with Haman. They go there that night. Now, Haman, meanwhile is um, really, really uh, um, um, interesting. See, Haman finds out he gets to go to the dinner alone with the king and queen. That's like a pretty big deal. I mean, how many people in here have ever sat down and eaten dinner? Just George, um, Laura, and you? Just... Two bushes and a person. <laughs> See, it's, it's a rarity. It was even rarer back then. This guy's king. And Haman is feeling really good about it. And he goes, and in the middle of the dinner, while they're drinking wine, the king says, Okay, Esther, I know there's something more to it. Now you tell me what you want, and I'll give it to you. And she says, King, what I want is for you and Haman to come back again tomorrow night for dinner. Let me make you a second dinner. And um, I'll, I'll tell you then what I really want. But I'd, I'd like another night with you. 
And so the king says, great. So Haman, he's going home, and he is singing zippity-doo-dah all the way. He is in high spirits. He's had his wine. He's had his fun. He's feeling like a really big dog. And you know who he sees on his way home? Mordecai. And Mordecai does not bow or kneel. And you take all of the elation and joy and the good times that Haman's feeling and you flip-flop it and he's that angry. He is incensed. He's furious. He goes home and he tells his friends and his, fa- and his wife, Zeresh, I think was her name. Yeah, Zeresh. He says, hey, listen to this. I got all this money. I got all this position. I got a bunch of sons. I got everything in the world. Everybody kneels to me. The king and the queen and I, just the threesome, we eat dinner together and it's turning into a regular thing. And that cretin Mordecai just ruins my day. He won't give me the respect I deserve. Well, the wife Zeresh and, her fr- and his friends say, we got an idea, man. You're so tight with king. Have some gallows made tomorrow. And uh, when you get up in the morning, go in and see the king and get permission to go ahead and just hang the guy. Don't wait for Ader the 13th to wipe out the Jews. Just have him hung. And Mordecai said, I mean, Haman says, yeah, that's a good idea. And he gets up to go to work early the next morning. Meanwhile, the king is having a restless night. He's not able to sleep. He's tossing and turning. So he says to his attendants, would one of y'all go out there and get my records? Let's just read about how my king thing's going along. Give me something to do. And they start reading, and they read, and they read about how Mordecai had unveiled that plot to kill the king. And the king says, time out. Did we ever reward that guy, Mordecai? And they said, uh-uh. The king says, well, I know it's early morning. Is anybody out in the courtyard yet? Oh, yeah, Haman's come to work early. He's out there. Would you bring Haman in? So Haman comes in, and Haman's pumped. He's saying, okay, I've given orders. The gallows are being built. I've got to wait for the right moment. I'm going to ask the king to let's kill Mordecai. Okay? Now, uh, yes, king, you wanted to see me. And the king said, yeah, I got a question. I need some advice. Let's say there's this guy that I really want to honor. And you just see Mordecai kind of, I mean, Haman kind of puff his chest out a little bit. You know, he's off one dinner and getting ready for the next dinner. He says, yeah, go on. <laughs> king says, uh, let's say this guy's just like, I'd like to show, what, what should I do to a man Haman, that I'd really like to honor. Haman says, well, thinking it's him, I think you need to get one of your horses, king's horse. Get some of your robes, robes you've actually worn. Put them on the man. Put the man on the king's horse with the little crown and all. And get one of your noble princes to lead the horse through the streets. And say, look at what happens to the man the king wishes to honor. Thinking, I'm sure, that he'd look pretty good up in that saddle. The king looks at Haman and he says, man, you're good. That's a great idea. Go find this guy named Mordecai out there. Get the robes, put him on him. Get one of my horses, put him on it. And why don't you lead him through the streets? And you can tell everybody, look how the king honors the man who the king honors. Okay, big headache coming on. (laughs) Big headache. 
And the king underlines and says, and don't forget to do everything you suggested. All those little extra detail things. Those are really good. So Mordecai spends his entire day, he has the wisdom not to say, oh, gee, judge, can we stop at the gallows and let me hang the man? Um, he leaves that alone. He's on plan B. And uh, he spends, Morde uh, Haman spends the entire day escorting Mordecai through the streets, proclaiming loudly. Here's what the king was, the man honors. And then he's got to hurry home because he's got this dinner. So he hurries home and starts getting ready. His wife says, how'd it go? You know, we haven't seen him hanging from the gallows yet. Did you ask the king? Did you ask the king? He says, honey, don't ask me. Okay, this has been a horrible day. And it is, I'm just not in the mood to go to this dinner thing tonight. Let me tell you what happened. And at this point, Zeresh, his wife, and his friends um, say, you know, come to think of it, that Mordecai guy is a Jew. Don't mess with Jews. You're in trouble. You're never going to come out on top. He said, well, thank you very much for telling me now. That's real helpful. Knock, knock, knock at the door. It's the eunuchs to escort him to dinner. He says, I've just had time to change clothes. I'm all dusty from going through the street, but okay. And he heads out to dinner, a nice intimate dinner, the queen, the king, and Haman with his excedrin headache. The king says to the queen, so tell me now. Whoops. Tell me now, what is it? Um, yeah, let's see. Oh, that was a picture that someone took of Mordecai being escorted <laughs> through the streets. I forgot to tell you that. Uh, that picture's in Amsterdam if you ever want to go see it. Uh, Lastman, who painted it, was uh, kind of a mentor of sorts, or a little bit, uh, uh, for Rembrandt. Um, but anyway, uh, so they get in this, this uh, dinner party, right? Just the three of them. And... Uh, uh, while they're there, the king says, what is it you want? And Esther says, well, here's the deal. I'm not asking for a lot. I just would like not to be killed and murdered. And I'd like that to be true for my family too. You see, there's a man who's plotted to kill me and to kill all of my people. And you've got to remember, Haman did not know that she was a Jew. She'd hidden it. And, and the king says, who on earth would dare to do that to you? And she says, him. <laughs> okay, this qualifies for one of worst days in history for any human being. Hammond says, what? She says, I'm a Jew. Hammond says, what? And the king burns with anger. And the king is so mad, he gets up and he marches out to the garden obviously fuming. And Haman recognizes that his life is gone. So he starts begging Esther for his life. And bless his heart, the wicked man, he stumbles and falls on her couch, landing on her right as the king comes back into the room. <laughs> the king says, so it's not enough. You want to kill her? You want to molest her here in front of me too, huh? Is this, this is it? And uh, long story short, uh, maybe it's too late for that, um, Haman gets hung on the very gallows that were constructed for Mordecai. Mordecai gets lifted up. The king can't reverse his edict about uh, kill all the Jews you want on 8 or the 13th, so instead he issues another edict that says all Jews are allowed to protect themselves and kill anyone who is their enemy and they can assemble together to do it. Basically, Jews get an army for the day. 
and they get to kill anybody who messes with them. And the Jews turn out victorious. And from this is the celebration of, of the victory, um, that is the Jewish celebration of Purim that begins to be celebrated out of this. And it's a wonderful celebration. So, points for home. What do we get out of this lesson other than a wonderful story that's just delightful to read? Uh, first point I would suggest is God is in control. Whether you name him or not, whether you say who he is or not, whether people know who he is or not, God is in control. And not just in Northwest Houston. He's in control in the entire world. No, the entire universe. Second point. You and I were made for a purpose. And the crisis in front of you is something that God made you uniquely to handle. You got a crisis in your life. You acknowledge the Lord. You seek the Lord. You let God be present. You let God give you wisdom. And you approach that with faith and confidence that it is God who has made you to handle that crisis. The crisis is not in control. God is in control. The crisis does not overwhelm you. The crisis has not come upon you because the, your day is a bad day and you're in bad luck. You are with the crisis because God's made you where with Him His will will be affected. May not be your will, may not be my will, but it will be God's will. And your role in the crisis is critical. God made you and I for a purpose. God will take care of His people. It, he will. He will. Doesn't mean he doesn't bring some of them home to be with him. Doesn't mean sometimes you don't lose a spouse, you don't lose your own life. But you never leave the palm of his hand, whether you're in this world or in eternity. God takes care of his people. Step out in faith. There's no telling how God's going to use you. Let me say it one more time. Step out in faith. There is no telling how God will use you. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the story of Esther. And thank you for those wonderful characters and what they say directly and what that story says indirectly. We worship you as a God in control. We lay our crisis before you. And we pray for your wisdom. We pray for your strength. We pray for your guidance. We pray for your motivation. We pray for your spirit to remind us of the things we need to know to hold us up in our faith so that we can work through our crisis with you as our pilot, with you as our leader, with you as our strength, with you as our shield. And may your will be done in our lives. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Happy birthday. Hey, thanks, man. Have a blessed day. Ah, thank you.